we looked at the concept of perspective. Many of you were here. I don't know that everyone was, but we looked at perspective in that it wasn't what we're viewing, but how we're viewing it. That's all the perspective. It's just how are you viewing something? You know, we can look at the same thing and have a different perspective and ultimately we'll see something different. We talked about that with regards to our perspective on this gospel. It's magnitude that would guide us and direct us regardless of our current events, regardless of the circumstances we find ourselves in. This gospel which we have been commissioned to carry is no respecter of earthly circumstances. Thank you, Jesus. But rather is so very much greater than the tangibles we deal with in this life. It's bigger than them. They are subject to the gospel. Then before that, a couple weeks before that, we looked at Stephen's life. Everybody remember when we talked about Stephen? He was commissioned by the early church to make sure that everybody that didn't have somebody looking out for them got food. Pretty unglamorous position, very needful, but not anything that anybody was like, I really want to be in charge of the sandwich committee, which is in essence what he was. It was like, can you just make sure that there's food for, and it wasn't for everybody. It was just for the people that didn't have anybody, which statistically are usually the ones that the rest of us as humans, just this, I'm not condemning anybody, but we tend to shy away from. Like, ah, it's like we don't have like a connection with them. And they're like, we want you to be responsible for those, that group of people, making sure they had food. Pretty simple. We looked at how his perspective on the gospel and his perspective on his commission and calling wasn't defined by his role in the local church. You guys remember that we talked, and it's like, he could have very easily said, listen, I'm doing my part. See all these people? They got food. I don't need to go out and get myself stoned. But he wasn't limited or defined even by that. He said, I'm going to carry the gospel. And so it says, and we glossed over them largely, but it says that Stephen did great and mighty work, signs and wonders at this sandwich maker's hand. Like, it was not a, I cannot stress enough that his role in the early church was not a glamorous one. It was just a job that needed done. This morning we had jobs that needed done. There was some snow that needed moved this morning. Not a glamorous position. And the guy that did it hoped that no one saw. Some people did. We've, been do- we've documented it a little bit. But it's not a glamorous, there's glamorous, there's not glamorous things that go on in a local church body for it to be healthy. There's a trash thing at the back, and that trash thing gets full, believe it or not, every Sunday. And it's never emptied. I've never seen that trash barrel like on uh, what's the Beauty and the Beast where it sprouts legs and walks over to, it doesn't ever do that, it just sits there full of trash. And then a person comes along and empties it and hopes that no, most of the people that are involved in that trash bin getting dumped hope no one sees them. And I know this because I know most of them very, very well. And they're, we'll wait until everybody's gone and it's under the auspices that, well, in case someone needs to throw something away. But I know they just don't want anybody to see them. But they weren't, Stephen wasn't defined by this. In fact, he was defined by the call and the commission. This was just a thing. Hey, you know what? The body needs somebody to make sure people need fed. I'll do that. I'm going to go out and I'm going to heal the sick. I'm going to raise the dead. I'm going to preach the gospel. I'm going to articulate great things with the minds of the day, not defined like, hey, I'm making sandwiches. And I look at this, this kind of fed into what we're going to look at this morning. We looked at his life and his ultimate his call and his ultimate death by stoning. We didn't look in depth. We didn't unpack every detail of that, but we talked about it. His perspective on the gospel wasn't defined by his role in the local church, but it was the exact same calling 
that Peter and John and James and Paul all had to preach the gospel. He worked signs and wonders, preached very clear and concise messages. Some of the clearest teaching we see in the New Testament is Stephen's message right before he was stoned. He was a very good teacher, but his job was making sandwiches. And I look at the body today, if you're looking, if you're here and you weren't here for those teachings, or if you're like, I kind of want to go back to that, it's found in Acts chapter 6. The book of Acts is a riveting book to read, and there's some instruction in, the, in there for the church today. Following the book of Acts, we see we break into the epistles, the letters. And a friend of mine, Grant Fraley, I was listening to a teaching of his earlier this week, and he, coined, he didn't coin it, but he reminded me of the phrase that the gospels are a snapshot, the epistles are an x-ray of this gospel. The gospels, we see it. We see it walking. We see Jesus ministering the gospel, but we don't really get into the nitty-gritty. He, he speaks so cloaked a lot of times where Paul comes along and he's like, okay, and you, anybody ever been in an x-ray room? And you see, they come in, it's like you pay for one x-ray and they come out with 37 sheets of the same. It's like, and the doctor sits there and they usually have the glasses on their nose, the ones that I always have seen. And they're looking through there and it's like, that's my leg, that's my leg, that's my, like, what are you looking for? And he's looking through, and he's looking for a specific thing. Now they don't do, I don't think someone that knows more than me should probably be talking about this because I don't know that they do the slides anymore. But they used to. When I was getting injured growing up, it was always the slides. Now I'm sure they swipe through on a tablet or a screen. But they look through, and they're looking for something very specific. X-rays reveal intricate detail. You can see cracks in a bone, and you can see where the crack turns. And it means something to them if they know anything. For me, it's like, don't know. White, blue, gray, shapes, not sure what it is. It's not my gifting, not my calling, not my job. That's what the epistles are for the gospel. We read through the letters, the letters that were written, and you see Paul bringing clarity, kind of like, hold on, let me pull this slide up. And then he gets Romans, and he's like, you know what? You guys need like a CAT scan of the gospel. The whole thing, we gotta get everything. So he writes the book of Romans, and it's got all these details. Like, see, this is how, you know the song, the head bone's connected to the neck bone. That's Romans for the gospel is that song. It's like, the neck bone's connected. I don't know the right words to the song, but you understand the song. That's what Romans is for us with regards to the gospel. It's this whole song, how is what all connected to what all? And I see reading through these epistles, we see clarity is lent to what we're supposed to be doing. Like what are we supposed, we're supposed to, when we read scripture, we've talked about rightly dividing the word of truth, looking for this new covenant, which is revealed in every page of your Bible, there is a glimpse of the new covenant. From Genesis to Revelation, we see this new covenant, which, as Hebrews explains, is a greater covenant, founded on a better covenant, founded on better promises. It's bigger, it's more, it works. See, the old covenant was proven for 1,500 years not to work. That wasn't nobody, and Hebrews talks about this, nobody was made right by the old covenant. The keeping of things and the ceremonial washings and the sacrifice, we talked about the sacrifice. The whole point of the sacrifice was just to show there's this outline in worship where a sacrifice needs to be made. 1,500 years, we drove around that shape. We drove around that shape. And then in the fullness of time, Jesus came. And he became that spotless lamb for us. This new covenant is all throughout scripture. And as I studied this, and I studied everything that we've just talked about, and you might be like, where are we going with all this? There's a lot in here. I understand that. <clears throat> but I want to I draw something out that Paul kind of gives some instruction on a few times. Some correction. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, whoa, we're going to do the pastor correcting? No. We're looking at 
Paul's corrective letters and what we can learn from them. Some corrective instances that he gave instruction. How many of you, how many people in this room are a parent or a guardian of young children or have been teacher? Like, there's a whole bunch of people. Can you raise your hands, please? I'll come raise them for you. There's a whole bunch of parents in this room, guardians, teachers, there's all kinds of you. And you know, if you're being honest, there are times I've witnessed where a child can actually get under your skin and then it's like, the line blurs a little bit between, is this corrective or is this like, uh, got a vendetta or something like, but generally speaking, correction is always for the sake of the corrected. Correction is always for the sake of the corrected. In other words, I'm walking through life, tra-la-la, flowing through, I'm on the stage here, and I'm walking, as my children do, walking this direction and looking that direction. As a father, I know my Children don't always think, let's come back here and look. They just parade right off the end. So I would be, as a loving father, now this step I may look at and say, we're about to learn something here. But in general, as a father, a loving father, I would say, stop. Let me correct you. Turn your head and look directly in front of you. Is this where you want to go right now? Off the edge. So correction, when Paul brings correction to the church, it is not, though it is often taught this way, with this hand smackery mentality, like, no, you will not do, it it is, I care about you. Even some of his extreme correction, it's like, for the love of everything holy, stop doing stupid things, because I love you. He viewed the church, all of the churches that he wrote letters to, as his children, See, Paul didn't have any earthly children. He had these churches, and he loved them all very, very much. So he brought these little bits of correction, and he saw in the early church, in the very beginning of Acts, we see Stephen appointed, and he goes out and does things. We have that going on in our body. Then as the church grows a little while, and they go and they spread, you know, if we had the kids still in here, we could do it and take the rest of the morning, line them all up, whisper something in one ear, and see what comes out the other side may not have any of the same letters. For sure won't have any of the same words. That's how telephone doesn't work. It just doesn't work. It's like you whisper and and then they hear one, well, I don't know. I mean, was that an R or a T? I'm not sure. So I'll just say a T. Well, it was an R. In fact, it was an N to start with. That's how this communication happened. Well, it happened in the early church that same way. They would get a letter and they would get a message and someone would go teach it and they could not go to Whatever your website is that you read the Bible or whatever the used to be when I was growing up, the Christian bookstore. We'd all go to Christian bookstores and we'd buy Bibles. You couldn't do that then. There wasn't Bibles. There was no printing. It was like we got this one letter that cost whoever wrote it dearly to write. They carefully wrote it. They sent it to its original recipient. They read it. And then from that reading, well, how well, we sent a letter to Martin he read it on Tuesday, and then he was going to bring some things from it on Sunday. He remembers, it is good, we should do all these things, we should love people, I can't remember. Like, little things can get lost in translation. Everybody familiar with losing something in translation? I forget how it was worded. Because then, when Martin's done reading that letter, he sends it to somebody, and they jump on their little donkey, and they hee-haw all the way to the next town, and they read the letter. And this continues until the letter makes it all over the place, but then Paul gets this, this communication coming back, and it's like, wait, they're doing what? There's, we're back to circumcise? Oh, 
We're not supposed to, this is not, salvation is not by the law, by the works of the law. No, 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 no. And all the stuff going on at uh, the church at Corinth, it's like, oh no, they got it third hand and they missed some vowels. They missed some consonants. I gotta go correct them. And he can't go, so he gets another expensive piece of something to write on and he authors a letter to them, bringing correction because he doesn't want them to walk off the cliff. He doesn't want them to bring about harm in their physical life. Now, what he's talking about isn't, you know what? Jesus has no use for you because you've misbehaved. It's corrective because he wants them to live. And beyond just living, it's not like I just want you all to be fat and happy. He says, I want you to be effective. I want you to be effective. So this correction, these letters are penned and preserved for our sake so that we can read through them and not take verses like maybe some of us have done in our lives in the past, tape them to the end of a stick and then beat ourselves with them or our neighbors with them. That's not what Paul's letters were about. We do that when, and we've talked a lot about that, we do that when we take things out of context. We'll take it out of context. You know what? I could condemn almost everybody I know with this one verse. It's about the right size for the end of a ball bat. I'm gonna wood burn it in the end of the ball bat and then just stand at the back of the church. This happens, church. That's a metaphor. Obviously, no one stood at the back of our church with a ball bat, but you understand what I'm saying. Anybody ever been, had their clock cleaned by one of those ball bats? And you leave and you're like, I ain't going back there. Jesus might love me, but what in the world is going on with his followers? So he brings this correction. It's like, we're not taking these verses and sticking them on ball bats. Take it in context. The context is always the love of Jesus flowing through the writing of Paul or James or John or Peter, who's ever writing for the church and for their hour now, well-being. How many of you struggle to receive correction? I'll just raise both of my hands for, for me, and then if you guys want to raise, you can. Great. This is, this is going to be an easy message because only one other, Trey and I are the only ones that struggle with this. <clears throat> Today, <clears throat> the corrective instruction that Paul gave the church that I really want to look at. The title of this morning's teaching is Our Lane. Now, if you're a runner, which I'm not, but you may be familiar with a lane, getting in your lane and staying in it. And you appreciate it if all the other runners also stay in their lane. Because you know, you can be the fastest person in the world, but if somebody dodges in front of you when you're in mid-stride, apples over the apple cart, game over. Races might not be even completed. So the message title is, to, is Our Lane. Today, I believe one of the most effective weapons wielded by the enemy and, hear me out, church, often wielded by ourselves to our own destruction is the weapon of comparison. I say that quiet. Comparison. Comparison on calls, comparison of giftings, comparison of provision, job or vocation comparison, ability comparison. Anybody else ever dealt with that one? Relationship comparison. Well, Tom and Jody have a perfect marriage, and mine feels like it's swirling around in the bottom of the drain sometimes. I, I'm compare, I'll compare my, that's, I don't actually feel that way. I love Melinda. And I know they're doing great. I'm using that as just a picture, everyone. Please, no one send me letters about that. <laughs> Relationship comparison, family comparison. Anybody ever done that one? We've done, I've done that one. I've done that one for a long, like where I see one aspect of someone else's family and it's like, I want that. 
health comparison. You're like, I've never compared myself. Yes, you have. I bet you have. Something goes awry in your body, and you look at the first person you encounter is someone who doesn't have that thing going wrong. So we begin to compare. And comparison is really, really, or looks comparison. Anybody ever dealt with that one? Probably nobody in here, but people in the world have always dealt with looks. Well, they look better than me. They look happier than me. Vacation comparison, can I get an amen? If you can't amen, I bet you can owe me. It happens. We get into these, and, and you know, this is not, Tammy's not here, so I can just go off on social media. She's always like my check, like, no, no social media, but she's not here. So social media has facilitated comparison in a new and exciting way. Now, I don't even actually have to have a good life to look like it. Get a little comparison going, my life looks perfect. As soon as I click the X on the screen and I'm no longer on social media, I go right back to whatever is wrong. But in that moment, you know, the family picture thing is the best, I think, the best. You, you guys have all been somewhere. We've done some uh, extended family trips years ago. Well, I mean, even last year we went on one with Melinda's extended family. One, this has been several years ago, there was 27, 28 of us all trying to take a picture on the beach, and one person needed to sit in a chair for whatever physical reason. I don't remember all the details. It was Melinda's dad, who is with the Lord now, and he needed a chair to sit down for this picture, for whatever the instruction was, while her brother had the chair, and he was on the other side of 27 people. And in a moment of brilliance, he said, rather than walk through the sand with this chair, I will chuck it. It's one of them bag chairs without the bag. Went flying through the air, and you could cut the tension. There was maybe even things that made it from thought to word that weren't like edifying or godly, but man, that picture... Our family was perfect. We were perfect. There was everyone smiled at the right time. Everyone's eyes looked happy and bright. And the minute that click was done, everybody's faces went right back to how they were. But when we posted that picture, when the photographer posted that picture, it's like, they're perfect. No, they're not. Should have been there. That's how comparison, you see, everybody's following me with comparison now. Now Paul comes along and he's like, we can't be doing this. This will kill us. This is an essence. Imagine that's a thousand foot cliff and we're walking along looking at like, well, I'm gonna look at everybody else and right off the cliff. Comparison will kill us. Jesus observed, back up a second. When we compare ourselves among ourselves, we operate in unwiseness, which I made up today. I put two words together, unwiseness. The act of being unwise is comparison. We can actually, which this is like should be a cautionary thing for us to consider, we can actually sow, which is to plant seeds, we can sow and support discord among the brethren and nullify the very work we're to be about or void it. Anybody ever had a check and you wrote void across it? Then you don't have any worries. It doesn't matter who finds the check. It doesn't matter. Your arch enemy can find the check and they can try all day long. Ain't nobody gonna catch it because it says void right across it. Has no value anymore. Our work as believers, not work like going out and we're gonna work for the kingdom of God, but our work of believing and of t going out making disciples can be nullified by the very act of comparison. Paul laid out in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that we're different parts in the same body. This is a good adjustment for us. 
in our own physical bodies, when one cell, I want you guys all to think about this with me. You, we're all here together in one accord. I want you to think about this. And I'm not gonna even close to do this whole sermon today, so everybody relax. We're making it to lunch. First Corinthians chapter 12, we see Paul lay out that we're all different parts of the same body. We're all one, not just in here, but with everybody in the world that's ever believed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're part of our body. In our physical body, anybody know what it's called when you have a cell in your body that has compared itself with another cell, found that cell wanting, and been willing to go to war with it? Anybody know what that's called? Tom, you know what that's called? Starts with a C. Cancer. You see, cancer's not a disease, and I'm not an oncologist, but cancer is your body turning on itself. And we see it, it's the perfect picture, and I hate talking about it, but it is the perfect picture of what comparison does to the body of Christ. We begin, it begins slowly. It's like we walk out, and I don't say hi to Kevin, I just sort of bump him with the shoulder and walk out. Like, well, he parked in my spot today. That's like, wait, what? And then I'm like, and you know what? He always parks in my spot. I want that spot. And I begin to come. You know what? I come here a lot of times and stay longer than him. There's comparison, everybody. I just made it there, just like that. Two sentences I made it to comparing myself among ourselves. Parked in my spot, and I stay longer than him. And I got to walk through the slop to the back because he parked in my spot. It begins to foment inside of you, and you begin to turn. You know, I'm not real sure I like Kevin very much. Like, wait a second. What? He parked in your are you sh- sure? But in a moment of comparison, how many of you know our right mind isn't there with us? Just like you can look at a cancer cell in a microscope and say, turn around. Stop eating each other. You're going to kill the body. The thing that is giving you life, you're trying to kill it. We sharpen one another. We Feed one another. When we share words, sometimes it's during worship, sometimes it's leading worship, sometimes people come up here and they share a word during worship. And they kind of interrupt everything and it's like, ah, and, and then we get back on track. And that's, there's food in those. There's things to eat in those. When you guys, on your, on your way out and you, you bump into each other and you encounter in times when we got a word, give to Chris and he shares that word, that's food. Now if we get to where we're devouring each other, nobody's eating, except we're devouring one another. Jesus observed, back up, cancer is destructive to the overall health of the body and will ultimately, unless it is healed, it will kill the body. That's a sober thought. We all know somebody that is no longer here that had that in their physical body and it paints a visceral picture for us to see and say, I don't want that in my relationship with others. I don't want that in the body of Christ. Jesus observed with wisdom and clarity that comparison could easily become a thing. And he addressed it in no uncertain terms the very end of the book of John. John chapter 21, we're gonna read verses 20 through 25. It says, then Peter, a little context before we read this. This is the disciples were out fishing and, they, and Jesus comes to them and they see him on the shore and they're, not sure who it is, and they're like, you got anything to eat? And they're like, no, we haven't caught a blame thing. And they're like, Jesus says, cast your net on the other side, wink, wink. Like, I can see Jesus, it's like, see if they get this one. Cast your net on the other side. And immediately they're like, oh, it's the Lord. The last time we did this, so they hurry their nets in and they throw them on the other side and the boat goes, Shoo. 
And it's more fish than they can tow in. They know it's Jesus. So Peter goes running. Because at this point, this is the first interaction that Peter has with the resurrected Lord after last exchange was denying with profanity that he knew him. Jesus fixes food and he has this conversation with Peter and he said, do you love me? Peter's like, yes, I love you. He said, feed my sheep. Peter thought it was done. Jesus says, do you love, do you love me? And Peter's hurt a little bit. Like, what do you mean? Of course I love you. I just told you I love you. Feed my lambs. And then as a, in, a, in a nod to his previous denial of knowing him, which was three times, the third time Jesus asked him, do you love me? And you can about see Peter break, not in a terrible bad way, but break where it's like, yes, and I understand what I did, and I love you. And he reinstates Peter. Now this context is important, because what we see right here Everyone understand. You hear me talk about old Peter and young Peter? Church, this is still young Peter. Still young Peter. Now, he's about to start shifting and changing, but right now, he just went through this exchange with the Lord, whom he previously denied. Jesus is like, we just talked about, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Establishing, Jesus establishing with Peter, this was a big deal that you were like, I don't know you, but I'm reinstating you. You are my disciple, you're my chosen. It's not because you're awesome, it's because I love you. He does that whole thing with him. Then Peter, just pick up, young Peter, everybody. You can smile a little bit. This is kind of, there's an entertaining aspect to this. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, which is John, following, who had also leaned on his chest at supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Further identifying that John is the subject of this. Verse 21, Peter, seeing him, says to Jesus, remember the context, he's like, Back, but just back. Just like, okay, I'm back with the Lord. What about this guy? What's going to happen to him? Now, you know, say, well, we don't know that he yelled it. But there was this, there was this like, hey, what's going to happen to him? Now, there was a reference earlier. We didn't look at it. There's a reference where Jesus is like, the end of your life is probably going to be really hard. We're not going to unpack all the words that he uses. But so Peter's kind of like, okay, well, my life is going to end poorly, physically speaking. And then he looks immediately to John. He's like, but what about him? What's going to happen to him? Verse 22, but Jesus said unto him, if I will that he remain until I return, what is that to you? Follow me. Sort of like, this is irrelevant. Just follow me. Verse 23, then this saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die. So Peter, with all the wisdom he could muster, is like, okay, he's not going to die. I'll go tell everybody I know John's not going to die, which is obviously not what Jesus said. Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but rather, if I will that he remain, what is it to you? This is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things. This is John identifying himself as the author of the book of John. And there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were contained, if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Amen. Jesus' words to Peter, what is it to you? You, your instruction, going from this place, I'm gonna nip this in the bud for you, Peter. I got a couple of weeks and I'm, I am ascending to be with the Father. I'm gonna sit down and I'm not getting back up until I come back. And when I come back, all this is gonna be done. Listen close. Don't worry about John. You, follow me. What's going to happen? 
follow me. Jesus' parting instruction, don't worry about everybody else around you in a negative comparison light. You just follow me. They echo in our ears this morning. If Peter had allowed his concern regarding the future for John to dominate him, he would have ultimately found himself unable to serve and unable to lead with John. We see, we know church history, some of you know it maybe better than others, but we see Peter and John were founding members of this early church. They were they were the ones when it was like two people get into a spat about, well, are we going to do the circumcision? Or are we not doing the circumcision? Where'd they go? Peter and John. How many of you know if Peter and John had said that day, we're going to tangle about this, and Peter's like, I think John should die a horrible death too, because I have to die a horrible death. I think he should die. And we become, they, they could, as Paul, we're not going to get to the scripture this morning, but as Paul exclaimed, you'll bite and devour one another. Now, We're just going to read it real quick. Galatians 5, 13 through 26. This is Paul's letter to the church at Galatia, and it's a, it is a corrective one. We talked about Philippians a couple weeks ago and how Philippians was just this like, you guys are doing a great job. Thank you so much for everything. Timothy says, hi, you're awesome. It's, this is not that way. The letter to the church at Galatia was, you guys remember me talking about when my dad needed to get my attention? He would say, now listen up. And that was last, there was no more warnings after that. That listen up was it. Like you either up, and this is like Paul's, listen up. Galatians 5, 13 through 26 reads, for you, brethren, you have been called to liberty, freedom. Only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That doesn't sound like compare with your, yourself with your neighbor. He says, love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, beware. Warning. Warning. You bite and devour one another, lest you be consumed by one another. I was going to start this morning, and then everything kind of changed with communion. I was going to start reading verse 16, say, Paul says, I say then, walk in the spirit, you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the, lust, for the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another. So that you do not do the things which you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions. There's some comparison in there. Dissensions, also comparison. Heresies, envy, also comparison. Murders, usually a result of comparison. Drunkenness can actually be a result of comparison. Revelries, also comparisons, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in times past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and comparison. I added the last one, I guess. Comparison's not in there. Self-control, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness. Against such things there is no law. There needs to be no law against such things. Those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires, sources of comparison. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. And we're back to comparison. You see, a lot of times people want to preach, and I've heard it, I've witnessed it, I'm sure many of you have witnessed them, whether you're listening online or churches you've attended in the past, or where people want to preach corrective messages. And we want to preach a corrective message about you name the thing. And they're always a lot more colorful than comparison. 
Doesn't comparison seem sort of like it's like pretty base? In other words, it's not acidic. It's not very, it's just like boring. Like what, comparison? Come on, get over comparison, church. And yet when you look through the works of the flesh as identified in Galatians 5, you see they almost all have roots in me measuring myself against my brother, against my sister, comparing. We're, instead of rejoicing with one another, it's, well, I mean, it can be everything, church. And I, my encouragement, I want, you to, I want to clarify before we wrap this thing. This is not corrective in that I'm looking out and saying, man, everybody at the rock is just comparing themselves at all. This is what I felt the Lord quickened in my heart to share this morning, and it is offered, my intentions in offering this teaching this morning are as an invitation. This is not, I didn't take these verses, tape them to a ball bat, I'm not gonna go stand at the back and beat you with it. This is an invitation. Ask the Lord, seek the Lord. He'll show you. He'll shine the light of his word and say, oh my goodness, I've been operating in some comparison. Lucas, if you wanna come forward and play some music, we're gonna close this morning. And I don't want, my desire, returning to what we talked about with communion, the point of this isn't for anybody to leave here feeling bad about themselves. That is absolutely not the gospel, to leave here and feel awful. Because Jesus did not die so that he could bring this correction and then leave you. You're stuck. You've been comparing yourself among yourselves. You're nearly devoured. You're nearly gone. That's not Jesus at all. He said, I'll be with you no matter what. I'll be with you even in the moments of comparison. When you feel your life fading because of all these comparisons, when you feel, and I believe there's people in here that have felt this, that you can no longer participate in corporate church because you've been hurt too many times by too many people comparing this and comparing that, and I just can't do it anymore. Some of you might be here today feeling that way. That is not the Father's heart for you. He said, I'll be there with you. You walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will be with you. The Lord is our shepherd. We can declare with David, the Lord is our shepherd. He leads me beside calm streams, fields of plenty, with peace. He promises to never leave us, never forsake us. So in the moment, wherever you find yourself, wherever this particular word resonates in your heart, he's with you. Also, just a little side note, if you've ever sat through a message like this, and your takeaway is, man, I wish so-and-so was here. <laughs> Some of you caught that. That's not who this is for either. Not saying that they couldn't be benefit from it, but it, sometimes it's so easy to be like, I'm gonna look around. Man, where's Tom at? This message was for him. I'm picking on him. You know what I mean, where you're like, this is for somebody. Let it be for you. Let the Holy Spirit reveal in you, I got something, you know what? I want to make some tweaks. And these tweaks are good. Church, I want to reiterate, this is not a thing. If I see anybody walk out of here like this, you missed it. Jesus said, I'll be with you. I'll hold your head up. I'll sit and wait for you. I will walk with you. I will hold your hand. When I look at being a dad, raising my kids, 
when my kids are afraid. So when my kids are in need, they usually seek their mother. This is the nature of children. But when they're afraid, they come for dad. When they're afraid, they come for dad. And you know, sometimes all you have to do, you dads, I'm looking around, you know, sometimes all you have to do is hold their hand. Sometimes all you got to do is pick them up. You can lay their head on your shoulder and you know you're going to be okay. That's your father's heart for you today. You might be terrified. This might be like, oh no, I'm comparing all kinds of things. He's here with you and we're here with you and we're for you. We will walk with you hand in hand. And I understand this hand in hand is not like this. It's like this. There's a lot of Christianity walking around like this. Everybody needs to fix this. And while the things that need fixed may be legitimate, this hasn't ever fixed anybody. This is how the Mosaic Law always manifests. I've sat under a lot of teaching where you went like this and this and this and this and you leave barely able to crawl. Nobody told you that you were loved by Jesus. Nobody told you that you belong. You don't, he doesn't just love you. If you believed in Jesus, you belong to him. You're not a recipient of just a gift. You're a recipient of an inheritance, which is so much bigger than just a gift. I can walk up to somebody and hand them money. It's a gift from me to you. But you know what? When I leave this life and my will becomes enacted, every earthly possession I have belongs to my children. Everything. Well, I mean, it would belong to Melinda. That might, you get the point. Like, it all, that's the difference between a gift and an inheritance. It's not like, well, you know, you can have some. You're an inheritor, a co heir with Christ. That's good news. That even in light of this correctiveness that Paul brings out, and we're going to look at some more of it. Not, don't anybody say, I'm not going back for another correction. It's going to be not heavy, okay? But we're going to finish this teaching. There's some more stuff I want to look at, some more scripture that we're going to unpack a little bit next week. We're going to look at measuring themselves by themselves. Wow. I, that, that right there shines some light into my heart where I'm measuring my influence, measuring my witness, measuring my impact by Trey's or by Jerry's or by Tom or by Kurt. These people that are having tremendous impact and I'm like, I don't think I'm reaching out to that many people. And instead of using, allowing the Spirit of God to come into my heart and shine and say, here, take my hand, I'll show you. I can take the measuring stick of Tom's life. And in fact, it's not his actual life, it's just what I see of it. Can I get an amen? We don't ever measure ourselves with each other actually. It's just what we see or what we perceive, our perception. As we fix our eyes on Jesus, there's a song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. I grew up singing it. It's one of my favorite hymns. And there's a line in it that says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus and the things of this world, everything around us, whether we're comparing ourselves or measuring ourselves, whether we're trying to build big businesses or big ministries or small ministries or effective ministries or whatever we get. Be when we turn our eyes to Jesus, 
Everything in this life grows, and it said, I love the, the author of the song says it grows strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. A lot of the churches miss that. It's not in the light of his expectations of our perfection. It's in the light of his glory and his grace, which is unmerited and unearned favor poured out freely into each of your lives this morning. If you would stand with us, I'm going to make a declaration as we get ready to go from this place. And then I'm going to pray for us. And if anybody would like prayer for anything, seek each other. I don't want to be this, well, we're the holy people at the front. If you want prayer, come see the holy people. Seek each other. We're the body of Christ. The cells that are next to you can help you, can pray with you, can lay hands on you, and expect to see things change. This morning here at The Rock, we declare that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That his love for us never changes. We choose, we chose this morning and we choose to continue to discern the body of Christ, the only acceptable sacrifice. We declare that we have been crucified with Christ. Therefore, because we've been crucified with Christ, it is no longer us that lives but rather it's Christ living in us. Thank you, Jesus. We declare that comparison has no place in this body, but rather we would encourage and exhort one another on to the good works which are ordained or set out for us to walk in. With thankful hearts, we declare that we're blessed and highly favored, blessed in the city, blessed in the country, when we lie down and when we rise up, when we go to work and when we rest. This declaration's not magic in any way, church. No one take this and think, well, I said it 14 times and it didn't work. It's not magic. Rather, it's a reminder of who we are in Christ so that we may walk free from the accusations of the enemy and even the accusations of our own heart. Confident, the sacrifice of Jesus in our place, we enter the throne room of grace, of unmerited favor with boldness. We go from this place today ready to share the gospel with anyone we encounter all to the glory of our Abba Father, our Papa, Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you for this great salvation, which is available and free, that we celebrated this morning in declaring your death. A lot of times we don't want to talk about that, but Lord, we thank you for your death on the cross. Because even though we could try and try and try, we would never be worth. We would never have enough worth in ourselves to pay the price that needed paid. Lord, I thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you for healing. Thank you for the blessing of Abraham that rests on each person that's here today. Pray that we would hold our head high, not in arrogance, but in confidence, Lord, as we go from this place. Confident in your goodness, not in our awesomeness or our own understanding, but in your goodness. You are always and only good, Lord. We praise the name of Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You guys are dismissed. Have a wonderful week.